When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast. A reading from Revelation. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God, the spirits of the prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Behold, I'm I'm coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers, the prophets of all who keep the words of this book worship God then he told me do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near let him who does wrong continue to do wrong let him who, who is vile continue to be vile let them who does right continue to do right and let him who is holy continue to be holy behold I am coming soon My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life, and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues just described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from his, him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book he who testifies to these things says yes i am coming soon amen come lord jesus the grace of the lord jesus be with god's people amen the key interpretive tools for the book of Revelation is the theme of martyrdom. The theme of martyrdom is throughout the book. We see a church that is being persecuted in the beginning of the visions that are given to John. And we see these constant references to those who have their robes washed, those who are prepared. Um, These are all themes of martyrdom that early Christians would prepare for. They talked about 
<clears throat> their martyrdoms with bridal language. Early Christians would talk about being prepared for their wedding day um, and sort of dressing up for that, dressing up for their trials and their tortures and their executions um, as martyrs. In fact, the <clears throat> quest for martyrdom, to put it bluntly, became such a problem for early Christians that so many people wanted to get martyred that the early church had to say, you, it's only a real martyrdom if you didn't want it to happen. Um, you can't go seek out martyrdom. You can't like do things to get yourself in trouble, even though Jesus kind of did that um, to some degree, um, and then get martyred. And that's not really martyrdom. Martyrdom is when you're minding your own business, doing right, and preaching the good news of Jesus, and they come in and arrest you and try you and execute you. That's martyrdom. Martyrdom is not you going to the governor's house and banging on the door until he martyrs you. Um, I don't know. These are fine distinctions, but there was a problem in the early church of people seeking martyrdom for its own sake. Um, that may be hard for us modern people to sort of wrap our minds around as we are fairly self-preservationistic. We like to preserve ourselves and our lives as best we can. But um, self-destruction is a, is a very strange phenomena that psychologists study in the animal kingdom and in the human kingdom. And they don't have a lot of real answers. Why, why are humans the only animal with what we would call mental illnesses or the desire to die or a suicidal impulse? Um, there are some animals in the mammal kingdom that have a suicidal impulse at times, self-destruction. It's pretty rare. Um, it has to do with usually the animal's intelligence, um, as we would judge it from a human perspective. Um, and so people puzzle, why are humans so self-destructive? Why do we have this propensity to, to want to die in a, in a sort of glorious way or, or way that is sad or invokes emotions in other people? Um, these are the, the issues that the early church was addressing but in this very early period, John the Apostle is still alive. There are still people alive that have a, a living memory of Jesus walking on the earth and knowing him. <clears throat> and so the texts about martyrdom in this book are about endurance, how to endure a martyrdom, how to endure persecution. Um, it is not really something that modern Christians can fully understand, even though you know, especially around Christmas time, there is a lot of talk about the war on Christmas, the war on Advent, that, you know, town halls and city governments are sort of debating what religious symbols to put up in their lobby or in the courtyard. Um, do you put a menorah up? Yes, let's do that. Christmas tree? Yes. Nativity scene? Eh, not quite sure about that one. Let's not do that one this year. And there's a little bit of controversy surrounding those symbolic gestures. But then even we go a little further into our culture and we say, like, you know, most of the stuff that Christmas, people are doing around Christmas time in America have very little to do with the story of Jesus in Bethlehem being born of Mary and Joseph. Um, it's all 
you know, retail and gifts and Santa and things like that. Um, there's a great vivid picture on the internet today or yesterday from France, from 1951 in France as World War II brought to France a lot of American culture. We had liberated them from Nazi oppression. And so there was a great outpouring of American um, culture in France. France has always enjoyed a wide variety of cultures um, to celebrate there in France and to, to learn about and study. Um, French people were obsessed with Native American um, cultural things for many, many years in the early colonial period. And Americans have always felt an affinity to French people. Um, our Revolutionary War was made possible by France in many ways. Um, and the, our bailing them out of World War II was a really big deal for them, as you can imagine. So this, there, this picture that I'm referring to is in a Catholic church in France. They're burning Santa Claus. They're burning like a Santa Claus stuffed animal or something. I don't know what. Um, in effigy to sort of say, like, we don't believe in American Christmas. You know, the secular Christmas is not something we want, um, which is kind of silly when you think about Europe and America and how all those things are intertwined for us. But that particular American brand of Christmas is the brand of Christmas that is all around the world. You can go to any country in the world and people know who Santa Claus is. And there's a picture of him on the, win the windows of the shops and things like that. And it's the American Santa Claus. It's not Father Christmas or anything like that um, in most of the world. Because American culture is some, has gone all around the world. And so um, it's a different world that these early Christians lived in. Uh, we might think of ourselves as being persecuted because they don't want to put the nativity scene up at the courthouse or something like that. But ultimately, Christians today enjoy a lot of privilege in this country. Most of our politicians are Christian in some degree or another. And really, like, just our culture is Christian. Um, if you think about the way we react to holidays, um, the idea that we would have school on Christmas is sort of unthinkable. And yet, um, lots of other religious holidays in America come and go every week, and we don't really stop everything. But Christmas really does shut down and start up the economy in America. And that's the real test of a cultural impact? Does it affect the economy? Does it affect how people behave in their ordinary lives? And I think we can argue pretty convincingly that Christmas still has a huge cultural impact on Americans. And as church people, as Christians, followers of Jesus, we like to remind people in a very nice way that ultimately this is a, a good news story that comes in the midst of a great greatly difficult time for people. Um, those Christmas messages are important that we highlight them. Charlie Brown's Christmas is probably does this the best. And the, all the arguing and bitterness and strife of their little community, Linus emerges with the pure Christmas story. The King James Version of the Bible, Luke chapter 2, there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And that's the real meaning of Christmas, Charlie Brown. And we have to remind ourselves of that every year. That's the real meaning of Christmas. And we um, have to tell people that and ourselves. But this early church um, didn't even celebrate Christmas yet. 
but they were being martyred. And so this, this theme of martyrdom is all on every page of the book of Revelation. And John puts his own name at the end of the book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. This is the same John who witnessed the transfiguration, who testified to that. He testified to seeing the spear wound in Jesus' side in the book of 1 John. He makes it very clear. I saw the spear wound. I saw blood and water come out. I am really telling you the truth here. Um, And he says it again in Revelation. He really wants people to know that what he saw is true. This is the apostolic witness, the witness of the apostles that later Christians came to trust and believe in and say that people that knew Jesus, the 11 apostles who were there, um, even Judas to some degree, and certainly the apostles that come after those 12 um, are real witnesses to the to who Jesus was, and we can trust their witness. Um, and that is what John wants us to do. Now, there's this awkward scene with an angel. John is standing there, and he sees the angel who's been taking him around all over heaven and the earth and all these visions, sort of his angelic escort showing him, you know, backstage uh, stuff that's happening and front stage stuff as well. He bows down and worships him um, at the feet of the angel. And the angel says, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you. And I'm a brother to the prophets and to all those who keep the words of this book. Worship God, he says. Um, This redirection of the angel is, I think, part of the early church's wrestling with some pretty difficult stuff. They were trying to figure out what Christianity was going to be about. Was it going to become another mystery religion with lots of secrets and knowledge about angels, but very little, um, you know, advice or practical guidance for how to live your life um, in light of that? Or was it going to become a religion centered around the life and witness and death and resurrection of Jesus? And these were two competing impulses in early Christianity. We see the Gnostic movement that comes shortly after this as being a, a really flourishing you know, understanding of the gospel. Lots of people got in on it um, because it did offer practical wisdom for everyday living in some ways. But it was a departure from this kind of early Christianity where we don't worship angels. We worship God. That is the point of Revelation, that when you devote your life to God, um, you're going to go through a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff's going to happen in this world, but you are going to be with God. And that's the, the message of martyrdom, is when you stand up for what's right and you're witness to the truth, that God will always back you up. God has built a city for you. There's a tree of life there. There's a river of life there. And you have access to that through your martyrdom. You're going you're gonna to be okay, even though you're scared, even though it's uncertain, um, even though it seems like the powers of this world have a lot of power. That's another big theme in Revelation that the powers of this world are really, really scary. And they seem like they have a lot of power over life and death of everybody. And it's easy to get discouraged in that. But ultimately, Jesus is triumphing over the powers of evil, just as he did on the cross, just as he did when the demon world um, saw him in action and, and begged him to stop. Um, 
Jesus has this power over the evil forces of this world and that you can trust Jesus in that power. And then there's this beautiful invitation. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let everyone who hears say, come. And let everyone who is thirsty come. Let anyone who wishes to take the water of life as a gift to come. This is echoing Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55 pretty much says the exact same words. That um, there is an invitation by God to all of humanity to come and feast, come and drink, come and enjoy life in the, in the heavenly kingdom. Um, this is the, the invitation to all of us. Um, it's hard to believe, if you had told me as a teenager that the, really the best things you'd look forward to in life someday would be things like getting a child a present or actually taking a nap when you have enough time to do it. Or, um, you know, the, the ultimate pleasures in life are actually, actually stuff that as a teenager you have no real interest in, um, ultimately. But really, like, that's happiness in many ways. Peace and calm and love and people getting along and connection and, and caring for each other. Those are actually the things that, that really make life wonderful and blessed. Um, if you had told me that as a teenage boy, I'm not sure I would have fully um, understood what you were saying. But that's why God reminds us in the book of Revelation. That ultimately, the vision of heaven is accepting God's invitation of love and peace. That is what we are signing up for. We're signing up for a place in this heavenly kingdom. And this is an invitation to all of us. And you can trust Jesus on this. You can trust Jesus. Um, You really can. He did go through life and death for us. He experienced everything we experienced. Even that helplessness of his infancy that we focus on this time of year, that is also part of our experience. Even the richest family with the most power and privilege, when you're a child, even in extremely privileged situations, um, you are still a powerless child. Um, every human, even w- no matter where they're born or what family they're born into, all have some experience of helplessness, of being small and, little, and a little powerless to affect change in the world around us. So all of us have that experience, no matter what our backgrounds are. And that is the experience that God had in the incarnation through Jesus Christ, that God experienced that helplessness, that even that hopelessness and despair of being a powerless little person in a world where everybody else seems to be able to control things for us and around us. This is the story of hope and faith that we have in Christ that we celebrate, especially at this Christmas time. Amen. Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people and hath raised up a mighty salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our forefathers and to remember his holy covenant, to perform the oath which he sware to our forefather Abraham that he would give us that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest, 
For thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people for the remission of their sins. Through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, and to guide our feet into the way of peace. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Members, Charlotte Diggs Moon, or Lottie Moon, who was a missionary to China. She was born in Virginia in 1840. Charlotte Diggs, or Lottie Moon, I'm not sure how they get Lottie. Oh, they get Lottie out of Charlotte. I never never made that connection before. Charlotte, Lottie. Okay. She was a child of a pious and affluent Baptist family, precocious in schooling. She received a Master of Arts in Classics, thereby earning one of the first graduate degrees awarded to a woman in the South. She had a gift for languages, learning first the biblical and romance languages, and then later... Uh, Mandarin. Lottie Moon's piety lagged behind her learning, and through her teens, she remained indifferent to her Baptist heritage. During a revival at age 18, she experienced a powerful conversion and devoted the rest of her life to Christ. After college, Moon taught school in Alabama, Kentucky, and Georgia, one of the few occupations open to educated women in the South. Another vocation became available to her when Southern Baptists began to appoint women as foreign missionaries in 1872. In the following year, at age 33, Moon accepted an appointment to China. The South that she grew up in was, um, you know, experiencing through her lifetime, she was in her 20s during the Civil War, so she would have witnessed that transition in in, uh, Virginia and all the places that she worked, Alabama, Kentucky, Georgia. I don't know a lot about her experience in the Civil War. but going through that, Baptists in the South were generally anti-slavery um, for the most part during the Civil War. Um, but I'm, I don't know, they don't have a lot of history about that part of her life. It seems like she was ready to get out of there, and she did. She went to northern China and continued her work of education and for girls She soon became restless in teaching, and she began evangelizing among adults, particularly women. Her supervisors disapproved of her initiative, but Moon quickly gained credibility because of her ease in relating to people. Lottie Moon's ceaseless correspondence with Baptist women in the United States, seeking their support and encouragement and encouraging them to be missionaries, was instrumental in the denomination's burgeoning missionary movement. She appealed to women for a special offering for missionaries at Christmas time in 1887, her influence led to the formation of the Women's Missionary Union in 1888, which continues as the Lottie Moon Christmas offering as a hallmark of Southern Baptist practice. On arriving in China, Moon remained aloof from the Chinese, thinking them her cultural inferiors. And this was the experience of many uh, white American and British missionaries when they went to China. Um, the world was very different there for them. And um, often there was a lot of distance between the Chinese people and the, and the missionaries that had moved there. And she 
felt this aloofness. She writes about this. Over time, however, she found a deep respect for Chinese culture. She adopted their language, their dress, and their customs. As she wrote, it is comparatively easy to give oneself to mission work, but it is not easy to give oneself to an alien people. Yet the latter is much better and truer work than the former. Um, Lottie Moon died on Christmas Eve, 1912. I think um, her life is testimony to a couple things. One is that in any kind of mission work or evangelization or whatever we call it, um, we who are doing it, if we are the ones doing it, must be learners and be mutual about it. We must adopt as much about their lives as they, we want them to adopt of ours, if, if that is what we want. And that people's culture, people's lives around the world are holy, ultimately. They're not corrupt inherently or bad or evil any more than the culture that we came from. Um, every culture has its evil in it, its troubles, its long-seated resentments and abuses and all those things. Um, we have to examine our own culture in that light as well, and I hope we do as Christians today. But um, Chinese culture, even though it's very different from the American Southern culture that she had grown up in, this was what she grew to love, and this is what she grew to respect. Um, and that message was pretty radical in her time, to send these messages constantly back to the United States that Chinese people are just as human as white Americans and black Americans and Asian Americans that live in, in the United States this time, although there were probably not that many on the East Coast during uh, Lottie Moon's lifetime, um, but that all human beings are part of this human family. This was a new concept for a lot of people in the world, including people in other countries. Um, you know, bound by geography and isolation, people tend to think of themselves as the real people. And then outsiders that look different come in. They are not fully human in the way that we are. Um, this, was, this is behind every cultural clash or problem in human relations over time. Wars are fought when we dehumanize an enemy. That's one of the propaganda techniques to paint the enemy in a light that they are not fully human, that they will do inhumane things to, to us if we don't stop them. And that can be really true in that there's a real propensity to violence, but it's a very human thing. And our enemies that we fight against in wars are very human, just like we are. Um, that is something that we need to remind ourselves of as peacemakers. <clears throat> but this uh, Lottie Moon's witness also spurred the Episcopal Church in America to get involved in missionary efforts around the world. Um, our U United Thank Offering which is sort of our version of the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, came out of Lottie Moon's movement that she started. <clears throat> this is also a story of women asserting themselves in places that they had been historically uh, banned from. Um, this Lottie Moon's life and witness was that women actually were accomplishing more to advance the kingdom of God than most men were, or really all men, um, her ability to organize, fundraise, and lead an organization that was composed by women, for women, and led by women is something that, you know, might not even be able to happen today. 
Um, even though we have progressed and become less sexist in many ways, um, I don't know if anybody could pull this off today, um, what she did, <clears throat> in witness to the fact that men had excluded her from certain places in leadership, so she asserted herself in the places that she thought were right. And this is the witness of women throughout history. In fact, um, we men have done a lot to um, stifle their gifts and organizational talents and witness to Jesus, the good news story, and preaching and teaching and evangelism. Men have been the one to say, oh, no, that's not something you can do. And women have always done it. And um, I'm thankful to live in an age where that is more acceptable, and yet we still find lots of sexism in our own hearts and in churches and in our Christian life. So <clears throat> whenever you find yourself not liking a certain clergy person or something, um, sometimes it's good to ask, is there other factors in this person's life that makes me not like them? Not just that I don't like their sermons or something. Um, you know, it's always good to examine why we don't like somebody if we happen to not like a particular priest. And that's one of the reasons whenever I go out of town, I really try to um, try to offer some kind of diverse more diverse experience at St. Joan of Arc than me, a white male. Um, try to encourage uh, women clergy and other clergy to, uh, to supply for me, although they're not always able to. I always ask a couple people, and they're with schedules and all the things they're doing, not always able to. But I always want to make that very clear that, that I am not the only version of clergy that is in the Episcopal Church. Um, that... Um, we actually have a wide variety of people's experiences in life and ages and sexes and races that make us who we are and um, ultimately show that the witness of the good news of Jesus goes everywhere in the world. There's nowhere we can go where God's presence is not already there. And that is what Lottie Moon witnessed to in her life. So <clears throat> you may not be traveling to China today to tell them about Jesus, Chinese people do know about Jesus today, <laughs> and um, the churches there are very strong and, and very wonderful. In fact, they probably ought to be sending missionaries to us at this point, and sometimes they do. Um, evangelism today is more about um, learning and being mutual with our exchange of information about Jesus. We have a lot to learn from other people, and, um, and we hope in that exchange they get to know the Jesus that we know that um, someone who gives them hope and life. And if the good news of Jesus and Christianity isn't give, giving people hope and life, then we ought to keep it to ourselves and not tell anyone. So our Christianity should give us hope and life. And to that extent that it does, that's the part we ought to share with other people. Um, I think we do this best when we um, tell real stories about our lives with people that we're close to. We say, you know, I went through this really horrible thing and horrible time, and I knew that Jesus loved me in that time. Or I went through this difficult experience for many years, health struggle, whatever it was. Um, but I always knew that, like, Jesus had me. I knew that Jesus loved me. And, um, you know, we need to, to share that part of the story with people as well. Because um, it is those stories that show that, that really there's something happening in a, inside us. Um, on a different level than just, you know, religion is kind of nice 
and has nice like sounds and sights and thoughts. Um, really, our faith is, is meant to be for the living of life. who in Christ Jesus has brought good news to those who are far off and those who are near. We praise thee for awakening in thy servant Lottie Moon a zeal for thy mission and for her faithful witness among the peoples of China. Stir up in us the same desire for thy work throughout the world and give us the grace and means to accomplish it through the same Jesus Christ, our Savior, who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen.